right. Well, hopefully you mothers were given a gift by your kids today of being able to sleep in until 7. <laughs> Fat chance, right? Uh, how many of you had a kid that got up before 7 today? Bugged you? Yeah? Okay. I also hope all you mothers will get to hear from your families on this irregular Mother's Day when you can't go to Golden Corral together. Uh, I know that uh, hearing from the people you love is the most important thing for you on any Mother's Day, but this year we get more of a chance to really test that, and uh, it's such a unique time. Well, last Sunday we started a series going verse by verse through the book of Philemon. And in the first week we talked about the communication of faith that is evident in this letter. In 64 AD, Paul, who was the last apostle of Jesus and itinerant church planner, wrote a personal letter to a friend of his, a Christian landowner named Philemon. And the letter was a request on behalf of an imprisoned slave named Onesimus. And this letter was uh, not a doctrinal letter. It was not a textbook. It was straight-up, real-life, practical faith. As we saw the introduction of the letter last Sunday, we noticed that the name Onesimus has not yet been mentioned in the letter. Paul started by talking about the equality that he and Philemon shared in Christ, and he praised him for his active faith. He reminded him that a believer's influence only comes through Jesus. And now today we want to read the second section that we're going to cover in this series. So we're in the book of Philemon, and I'll give you a second to find it. Uh, it's right after Titus and right before Hebrews. Good to see some boys and girls with us this morning here in the service in the building, and I'm thankful you could be here. And we do have some uh, children's ministries, things that are starting to happen this Wednesday We'll start a three-week uh, ending for Awana, and so make sure you check your church email about that, but some Awana stuff going on this Wednesday. Uh, also, youth group this Wednesday back in the gymnasium where they could spread out, and then we are going to start back up an adult Bible study this Wednesday at 7 here in the auditorium, and so spread the word on that. I know that there are some uh, who are in the more vulnerable category who can come to that because we definitely can spread out a little bit more. But that's this Wednesday at 7. We'll start that back up. And so spread the word on all those things. Philemon, verse number 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. And there's a phrase in verse 10 that we're going to use as our springboard on this Mother's Day, for my son Onesimus. And it's amazing how many applications to motherhood are found in this short section of verses in a first century personal letter written by a man. 
And uh, so we're going to see those this morning as we go through it. Let's start with this phrase, not convenient. Not convenient. And uh, mobs, I, I don't even have to ask, but I will. Uh, in your parenting, have you ever been tasked with doing something that was not convenient? Uh, some of you are laughing out loud right now because a whole lot of parenting is not that convenient. Right? What's best for the child is not often convenient for the parent. Now, this may date some of you, but, but how many of you moms use cloth diapers for your kids? Yeah, okay, so that's not convenient, right? And two in the morning baby feeding, not convenient. Uh, Three-year-old's feet in the side as you try to sleep. Giving multiple baths instead of being able to enjoy your own. Uh, how many of you have ever had to get up earlier than you'd like because you have kids? Yeah, and what about staying up later than you'd like? Or reading a Dr. Seuss book for the 500th time when you'd like to be reading something that an adult would find interesting? Now, what about trying to keep enough food in the house for a teenage boy or two? Or how about having to drive a minivan instead of a cute sports car? And helping with homework, especially as the video showed these last six weeks. Making sure Johnny or Susie has everything ready for the science fair project. Transporting kids to sports practices. Watching games in the freezing rain. Parenting is often not that convenient. And much like parenting, the request that Paul would make to Philemon would not necessarily be comfortable. I want you to look again at what he says in verse 8. He says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. He says, listen, I'm about to ask you for something that may not be convenient for you. And I'd like to be able to ask you for something convenient, but this probably won't be convenient for you. Now, this is written at a time uh, when the world is in upheaval. Uh, there is a lunatic in charge of the Roman Empire. And first century Christianity as a whole was not convenient or comfortable. It was nothing remotely like modern Christianity. Uh, remember, Paul's writing this letter from prison, even though he's completely innocent of any crime. And so when Paul says, hey, Philemon, this may not be convenient, he's really saying something. Okay, this is going to require sacrifice. This is going to require humility. This is going to require you doing things you don't want to do. Sort of like what Jesus said following him would be. Remember what Jesus said? Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, those are some pretty tough words, right? To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Unfortunately, we live in a time where taking up our cross usually stops at the end of the word convenience, right? If it's not convenient, we don't commit. If it's not convenient, we don't buy in. If it starts as a convenience and then grows to be uncomfortable, 
We're out. Modern Christianity, especially in the United States, is much more multiple choice, convenience driven, and comfortable than it's ever been before. And instead of being an actual lifestyle, Christianity has become more of a hobby. Scratch that. Fact is, many Christians are even more committed to their hobbies than they are to Christ. I'm sure there might be a few people who will puff up at that suggestion, but the truth hurts, and the truth is not very convenient sometimes. A lot of American Christians are actually more committed to to their yards than they are to Christ. They budget more time and money and effort for their yard than they do for the cause of Jesus. And many believers are more committed to personal entertainment than they are to personal discipleship. It's not even really a contest. And you say, Pastor, listen, you're starting this message really negatively. I might have to turn it and find a sermon that's more hopeful to my life right now. And folks, I I promise I'm not trying to discourage you during a difficult time. I'm just starting with the truth. And plus, I'm getting back to live preaching where people actually get under conviction right, where you can actually feel that. Uh, You can't feel that when you're preaching to a camera by yourself, right? Like at home, if they get under conviction, they pick up their phone. I wonder what's going on on social media right now. But in church, everybody would see them, right? So so we got to watch that. We're getting back to some of those norms. And I'm not trying to discourage anybody, but we do have to preach truth, don't we? Following Jesus requires us to set aside comforts. Helping others always has a cost, much like parenting has a cost, that rises above the convenient. And so Paul says, Philemon, I wish my letter was asking about something convenient for you, but it's not. It rises to a different level. Now, let's see the level it rises to as we go from verse 8, and join thee that which is convenient, to verse 9, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee. And that's the second part, for love's sake. What would you do for love's sake? What would you do for love's sake? Well, every love song that's ever been written says that you would do whatever's required, right? Every poet who's ever written a sonnet about love has written about how much commitment it gives and how unconditional it is. Uh, Our daughter, Sophie, one of her favorite things right now, for some reason, is weddings. And I don't know why, because we haven't been to one for a long time at least like a normal one, and, and, uh, but she watches this wedding show and at Disneyland or Disney World or somewhere, and they're getting ready for weddings, and, and uh, she was asking the other day, she said, uh, Mom and Dad, if the wedding, if they say they're going to love each other forever, why do some people not do it? Well, that's a good question. And so I said, Mom, you explain that one to her. And, uh, <laughs> So uh, Amy kind of explained it all to her, and she said, I don't get it. If you stand up there and you stand across from somebody and say, I'm going to love you forever and for better, for worse, and you take all the time to get that special gown on, 
Why would you not do it? Well, every country loves song, and every pop loves song, and even every rock loves song, even though they only say the same phrase the whole way, is about love's sake. It's about unconditional commitment. It's about whatever is required. And what does love require of us? Everything. What does love demand us to give? All. How do we know this? We are informed on this because that's what Jesus gave. And in human relationships, there are a few different levels of interaction and commitment. Many people uh, live their entire lives at level one, which is the law of retribution or, or the rule of treating others like they treat you, the iron rule. Use the iron fist. You come at me, I'll come back at you. You knew this rule when you were four years old, right? Mom says, why'd you hit him? He hit me first, right? Why'd you tear that toy out of his hands? Uh, she took my toy first. And, and some people, like I said, they live their entire lives in this miserable existence. And they make retribution and competition the basis of the relationship. Oh, you want to give me the silent treatment? Well, two can play that game, right? Uh, oh, you don't want to clean up your dishes from the table? Well, I guess the table will just be full of dishes. You look at me wrong, I'll look at you wrong. You deny me, I'll deny you. You bring up two positives about yourself, and I'll bring up two positives about myself. Can I just tell you, it's not a fun way to live. If you've ever lived that way, even temporarily, it ain't fun. I'm going to get corrected by uh, some, some of the kids at school because I just said ain't. And ain't ain't a word, right? So how many of you kids are keeping tabs on that for me? Can you mark that down? How many times we say words that aren't actually words in church? It's not fun to live that way. That's why at some point in your youth, hopefully, somebody shared with you that the iron rule is a bad rule, and they told you about the golden rule, which Jesus shared in the Scripture. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others like you want to be treated. Don't do what he did or she did. Do what you'd like to have done to you. Now, there are some business people who have named another rule the platinum rule. And they say it goes like this. And maybe you've been in a seminar where they said this. Treat others like they want to be treated. Okay, that's the platinum rule. Treat others like they want to be treated. Now, there's some, definitely some difficulties with this rule. Uh, have you ever treated a three-year-old like he wanted to be treated? Right? He'd have a popsicle for breakfast, cake for snack, and, and then... <laughs> the worst junk food possible for lunch, and then in the afternoon, have ice cream, right? If you treat everybody like they want to be treated, that's an interesting rule, uh, mostly made up for better customer service because the customer is always right. And to treat him like he wants to be treated, etc. And then I saw that somebody even made up a new one called the double platinum rule. Right? The double platinum rule. Treat others the way they don't even know they want to be treated. Okay, now this is getting a little too psychological for me. 
Like, if you don't know how you want to be treated, how should I know how you want to be treated? Right? It gets a little more complex, and there's so many rules and so hard to keep. And if you're a Jesus follower, it's much easier to figure out out, uh, than a list of rules named after minerals. Uh, It's the highest ethic that has ever been stated anywhere. Treat others the way Jesus has treated you. Right? It really comes down to a question. What does love demand of me? And so Paul says to Philemon, yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee. Now, why say that? Because only unconditional love moves us beyond inconveniences and comforts to care for the people around us like Jesus does. Only unconditional love does that. And we've already established that all of us have done some things for love's sake. Because there are things that don't really fit any other definition than unconditional love. Like that time when your daughter was sick and you held her hair back while she vomited in the commode. Yeah, you remember that time? How many remember that time when your one daughter held your other daughter's hair back while she vomited, and then that made her vomit, and then the whole car had to be cleaned? I remember that time, and it was a rental car, and we were late to the airport. Just a personal story. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that happened. Uh, Or how about that time when your son, uh, because he's a farm boy, fell literally into a cow pie in the field? And you were tasked with cleaning him up. And that time when you ran into the street without looking both ways because your four-year-old had wandered out there. And that time when you went absolutely crazy on social media because you heard somebody said something about your kid. And that time when you gave up the last piece of your favorite pie because your son wanted seconds before you had firsts. Oh, why do these things? Because love demanded them. Unconditional, no circumstance love. The kind of love that we only know and experience because it comes to us from the Creator. The kind of love that lays down its life for a friend. The Bible says that God is love. He is this love. We don't have it without him because he is love. In in this was manifested the love of God toward us, in that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The kind of love we're talking about here only comes from God. Now, here's what's curious. Atheists experience this kind of love in their families. But they can't force themselves to admit where it comes from. Skeptics and mockers, they love their kids just like you do. But they can't source the origin of love to God or it would ruin all their arguments. They would have no one to blame for their disappointments. And when Paul says to Philemon, for love's 
sake. He is referring to the highest form of love that Philemon knows. The love that Jesus showed when he forgave those who had just hung him on a cross. Philemon knew enough about Paul and his teachings to understand that when the words for love's sake are used, it's referring to even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. So what does love demand of me? Treat others as Jesus has treated me. That pretty much covers it all. Uh, Before he ever mentioned his actual request, Paul shared that this particular ask wouldn't be a convenient one. No, it would be for love's sake. Now let's talk about verse 10. Begotten in my bonds. That's the third part. He said, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. And now we have actually arrived at the reason for the letter. Okay, so we're 40% through the letter, and we've actually gotten to the reason why it's written. While in prison for preaching the gospel, Paul had met Onesimus, a slave who had robbed his own master, Mr. Philemon, and fled to Rome. And now he was in the dungeon with Paul, and we know from studying just a bit of first century history that the circumstances of the conversion of Onesimus were not pleasant. Okay, the condition of these dungeons were more like a sewer pit than a prison cell. You could just say they didn't have television in these cells, okay? Prisoners were dropped into them and forgotten about until execution time. Most of them died before they could be executed. And it was in this horrible place, the worst circumstance you can imagine, that Onesimus met Paul, heard the good news of Jesus in the dungeon, and was born again. Out of the worst conditions came the best hope, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And now that Paul and Onesimus had gone through this experience, they were spiritually inseparable much like a mother with her newborn child. In fact, Paul says, For my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Months of travail had gone into this relationship. You probably don't remember, let's just be safe to say you don't remember those dark days after your conception. Okay, after you were conceived, those are the days you don't really remember. But your mother does. When you were 21 days old in her womb, you could fit on the tip of a safety pen. And while she woke up every day with morning sickness, you were growing like a weed. Your body was doubling in size on a regular basis, and she felt like hers was too. She had all sorts of aches and pains. And and when you didn't like what she had eaten, you kicked and screamed. Well, like, like a baby. And, and finally, after 38 or 39 or even 40 long, long, long weeks, she went through the human struggle that brought you into this world. And all of the pain and annoyance and inconvenience was forgotten. Why? Birth had taken place. 
minutes of sheer joy had replaced months of misfortune. That's how it was for Paul and Onesimus. When Onesimus bowed his head in that dungeon, chained to a wall, stuck in the mire, and he chose to receive the gift of life that only Jesus offers, everything changed. Paul's pain of imprisonment was replaced by the joy of having a son in faith. Onesimus was born again. And now Paul had a special interest in seeing his son in the faith grow to maturity. And so he says, I beseech thee from my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. This was personal. Even though Paul had never planned on being in the dungeon, even though Onesimus had never wanted to be anywhere near a dungeon, God brought good news through the dungeon experience. And the circumstances of your physical birth may not have been what you would have chosen. Your mother, in fact, may not have planned for you. But you can be certain that God did. The conditions of your birth may have been less than joyful, but God has a purpose and a plan for you. It's possible that your mother faced extreme hardship or bad decisions, and she may have even abandoned you or put you up for adoption. It may be that your mother carried you to term after being physically mistreated. But remember this, only God gives life. And God has plans for you that are much bigger than your birth family. And it could be that God allowed you to be born into the world so that you could be a part of his eternal family. Because God has big plans for you, and that's what he had with Onesimus. Think about this young man. He was likely born into slavery in the big metropolitan city of Colossae, born into slavery, horrible conditions, the worst conditions you could possibly imagine. That's how Onesimus was born. Dreadful circumstances. On top of that, his personal choices had been poor. But God had ended up working it all for his glory, and that's what God wants to do in your life. God loves you. He's done everything possible so that you can choose to love him back. Now, God won't force you to accept eternal life, but he stands ready to embrace you if you do. And so Paul says, Philemon, I realize this isn't convenient, but for love's sake, I'm writing you about Onesimus, your former slave, who is now a child of God. Now, once you see verse 11, it's so interesting. He said, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. And let's talk as we finish up about unprofitable to profitable. Unprofitable to profitable. Now, you're probably not going to believe this. It's actually crazy. Uh, really, seriously, it's crazy. The Greek word Onesimus means profitable. Is that crazy? 
The Greek word Onesimus means profitable. It's the literal definition of the Greek word. And this young man, Onesimus, had never lived up to his name until he met Paul, who introduced him to Jesus. In time past, he was the opposite of his name. But now he's profitable to thee and to me. And so Paul says, hey, Philemon, I'm writing to you about Mr. Profitable. Now what changed when the blood of Jesus covered Onesimus? How about everything? Because only salvation through Jesus can change the sinner to the saint, the barren to the fruitful, the worthless to the valuable, the unhelpful to the helpful, and the useless to the useful. When God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. He sees a son or daughter. Some of you have a mama who has always been your defender and promoter. And she has stood up for you through your orneriness, through your mischievous activities that have been happening since you were in the church nursery at Levi. And uh, she thinks... You are the greatest singer, comedian, actor, artist, and chess player on the planet. She doesn't care what anybody else's opinion is. Why? You're her kid. That's what she sees. That's all she sees. And when it comes to you, she's got all sorts of blind spots. You've mistreated her, lied to her, taken advantage of her mercy, talked back to her, made her cry, broken her favorite glass figurines playing tennis uh, in the living room with your dad while watching a football game. Oh, sorry. I got distracted. That, that's actually a personal story. You go back to the message. Uh, you borrow money that you never repaid. She hasn't even asked for it back. You've called her when nobody else would answer the phone, and she still talked to you. She's given you relationship advice that you should have listened to, but you didn't. And then she gave you more relationship advice that you once again should have listened to, and you didn't. She's given you financial advice, believe it or not, automobile advice, home remedy advice, even gardening advice. You've given her some stories that were 10% true and 90% fiction about a teacher picking on you. And then watched your mama go after that teacher like a bear whose cubs have just been stolen. All based on a tiny bit of truth wrapped in a lie. You heard her yelling at the top of the stands of the basketball game when you got fouled and the ref didn't call it. And on your best day, she hugged you and loved you. On your worst day, she still hugged you and loved you. Why? Because she's your mom, and you're her child. And she thinks you are profitable in spite of what other people think, especially your siblings, right? And maybe even your daddy. But mama hadn't given up on you. And Paul said, listen, Philemon, I know there's some history here. Onesimus was unprofitable to you, but now he's profitable to you and to me.
In fact, he's my son, begotten in my bonds. A child of God, let's be real for a minute. You and I both have certainly done some things to disappoint our Heavenly Father. We've lied to him, denied him, forgotten his words, deliberately disobeyed him, disregarded his purpose for our lives, lived selfishly and full of pride. We've mistreated some of his other children from time to time, and yet we are his children, and he loves us with an everlasting love. And when you take one step to restore a relationship with God, he takes two steps towards you. When you decide to return home, he runs to meet you. I love the powerful picture in the parable of the prodigal son. As the prodigal son is out with the pigs, and he's down on his luck, he has no more money. All the people who he thought were friends were just latchers on and just trying to get stuff from him. And he's out feeding the pigs, and he actually considers eating the pig food. Right? Now, if you're the Tilford Ranch, that may not be a bad thing because those pigs get fed real well. But back in the day, when this kid was at the pig farm, they were just eating scrap. And he thought about eating it. And then this thought went across his brain. How many servants of my father are better off than I am right now? I'm going to go back to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. And as he goes home, the father, the patriarch which in Jewish custom, uh, he, he was the figurehead. He wore the long robe. Nobody messed with him. He's the patriarch. The patriarch hikes up his robe, runs to meet his son. That's what the father does with us. To him, you are profitable. He will work all things together for your good if you'll just let him. And even if you've been a vessel of dishonor, he wants to change it today. He wants you to become profitable to his kingdom purposes today. Because God's love is the ultimate love. Yes, a, a mother's love is special, but it's only possible because of God's love. Paul's love for Onesimus was special, but only because it was grounded in God's love. And it is that love, the for love's sake kind of love, that God empowers us to share in all of our relationships. It's that love that Paul beseeched Philemon to consider in his reaction to having Onesimus reinserted into his life. And so what does love demand? That's the faith challenge. It's a question. What does love demand? How would Jesus have you to extend his relationship-repairing, circumstance-free love to the sons and daughters of faith? You know, we all have valid reasons for holding debts over people who've hurt us or people who've hurt the people we love. I get it. 
There are people who have legitimately caused you pain. They've stolen something from you. Maybe money, maybe your childhood, maybe your purity, maybe your joy, maybe even you feel your future. And the truth is, they don't deserve to be forgiven. But really, who does? I don't. You don't. None of us deserves to be forgiven, especially by God. We fall short of his glory. We're sinners by choice, alienated from God since birth. On our own, none of us is righteous or even good. And yet, through the blood of Jesus, we are offered forgiveness. No more condemnation. Life eternal with God. But with that forgiveness comes the responsibility to forgive. Because the lack of forgiveness is a relationship blocker. A couple weeks ago, we were so bored at our house that Autumn and I uh, found an old crate of tennis balls and we started throwing them up on the roof. And they were bouncing down. I said, okay, Autumn, we're going to try a game we're going to throw it up and see if we can get it to bounce twice before it falls back down. So we threw it up, bong, bong, down. Oh, wow. Let's try three times. They throw it a little bit higher, dong, 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 three. It bounced down. And then Autumn threw one, and it went straight up in the air, and it didn't hit the roof. It came straight down in the gutter, like without bouncing. It's actually remarkable that she did this. Um, she couldn't do it again if she tried. She threw it up, and it went straight down in the gutter. And she started dying laughing. She's rolling on the grass, having the time of her life during quarantine, throwing tennis balls on a roof or in a gutter. And I said, okay, get another one out. We'll try to do it. Well, then we threw another one. It got stuck up in a tree. I don't know how it got in the tree because it's not by... Anyway. And so then I said, okay, well, we'll throw this one, and we'll knock that one out of the tree. So then we lost two more trying to get the one out of the tree because they got stuck up in the tree. And finally, we had like six balls up on the roof. And I said, you know what, Autumn? We got to get the ladder out now. We got another chore to do because we got to get the tennis balls. Why do you got to get the tennis balls down? Well, because they're stuck in the gutter. You know what happens when a tennis ball gets stuck in the gutter? Well, one little tennis ball in a clean gutter will mess up the entire system for the gutter to work. All that water the rainstorm puts out that would normally go through that downspout gets blocked. The water can't flow. It has nowhere to go. And then you got a mess on your hands. You know, that's what a lack of forgiveness does. Here's God's amazing grace flowing down through your life. And all of a sudden, a lack of forgiveness, a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of, of anger that you won't let go of blocks the flow of God's amazing grace. And it can't go anymore. It's not because God's flow isn't strong enough or God's grace isn't strong enough. It's because our unforgiveness blocks it. It's a forgiveness blocker. If we refuse to forgive others, we limit forgiveness for ourselves. But when we extend God's special love to those who are undeserving, 
that's when we're truly like Jesus. That's when we're truly reminded of how great his love is for us. And so what does love demand of you today? What's the Holy Spirit whispering to you right now that love demands of you today? How would Jesus have you to extend his relationship-repairing, circumstance-free love to the sons of daughters of faith and to those who don't yet know him in this world? Let me pray with you. Our Father, I thank you today for your love that goes beyond explanation, for your grace that is so great that it covers all of our sins. And we thank you for this passage in Philemon that helps us to understand what your love really is and how we need to have it in our lives for those around us. And I pray especially for our mothers here today and our grandmothers and great-grandmothers those who are in the room, those who are watching at home, I pray that you would fill them with your grace like never before, that you would empower them to be an influence for you, that you would allow them to bring others under the influence of God's love because of how you work in their lives. And Lord, as we continue to go through this book of Philemon, I pray that we would make commitments as your children that are worthy of you and worthy of your love. And we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.